That's it really, isn't it? No more uh, words from any of us. Sometimes our many words, maybe that's true for me and maybe it's true for you. Maybe our many words disguise the lack of reality that's going on in our hearts. And those moments, above all moments, when we know that this stuff is really real, is what matters more than anything else, isn't it? When all the songs have been sung and all the sermons have been preached and all the sitting, dancing, all the notices and events, when all that's done, and it's at the end of your day, when you put your head on the pillow at night, I'm asking you, do you know that it's true? That your life is safe in God's hands? Because that's what's on offer. Not here, not from this church, but that's what's on offer here in God's Word. And we're looking this morning at the last of our Freedom in Christ series about staying on, on track or staying on the right path. And here are some words that will help us to stay, I hope, on the right path. That when we find ourselves in that place of knowing that this is real, how can I live each day in the fullness of that knowledge so that come what may, whatever comes my way, I know my life is safe in his strong grip. Turn with me if you haven't still got your Bibles open to that page 1184, would you? Chapter 3 is the turning point in this letter to the church at Colossae, the Colossians. Someone's nicked my glass, praying for the safe return of my glass. And what Paul has been doing against the onslaught of false teachers, he's been reminding them through the first two chapters that all they need is Jesus. They don't need Jesus and a particular type of religious experience. They don't need Jesus and a particular uh, set of rituals. They don't need Jesus and circumcision and wearing the right hat, the right clothes, doing the right dance. All they need is Jesus. And so if you just flick back, excuse me, if you just flick over the page to Colossians 1 verse 15, you can see something of the emphasis that Paul is saying. Because these people were turning up at the church of Colossae, say, hey, it's all very well you've got Jesus, but you need Jesus and. And we live like that sometimes, don't we? I've got Jesus and I keep my fingers crossed about such and such and I, I keep all my options open. And Paul said, no, just Jesus. He is, verse 15 of Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him, <coughs> excuse me, by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so he goes on, over and over again. Jesus is it. All of it. All you need for this life and uh, the next. And what he's wanting the Colossians to do is to get their belief right. 
Because Paul knows that if they get their belief right, their behavior will follow. And that's so typical of Paul in all his letters to the churches. He always starts with a lot of stuff about believing right before he goes on to the behavior. He doesn't swan up to the church and say you should be doing this, that, this, that, and the other. He swans up to the churches and he goes, you must be believing this. And this is Jesus. Because if you get your belief right, your belief in Jesus and all the things that his lordship stands for, then your behavior will follow almost automatically. So Paul moves from orthodoxy, right belief, to orthopraxy, right behavior. And he does it time and time again in uh, the letters that he writes. And uh, it's exactly the same uh, here. Right belief will lead to right behavior. And that's what we've been talking about, hasn't it, over, over, over many weeks now, since September. That if we get our belief right, if we understand what's true, what will the truth do for us? It will set us free. So come this evening, will you, to our gathering at 7 o'clock where we will celebrate together the freedom that comes through Jesus Christ. Not Jesus and, just Jesus Christ. His freedom. He sets us free. What, our behaviour in line with His? No. Our belief in Him. Our belief in the truth because the truth is what ultimately sets people free. So here he is again. Colossians 1 and 2, right belief, into Colossians 3, right behavior. Right, Bible's open in front of you. Here we go. Colossians 3, verse 1. If it's true, if it's true that everything is Jesus, if it's true that all we need is Him, He is above and beyond all things, that in Him and Him alone all things hold together, then Paul says, for goodness sake, Since you have been raised with this Jesus Christ, this one who is above all things, then set your heart where? On things above. Set your heart on Him, the one who holds all things, your life included, in His strong grip. Because you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. Here is a truth, a belief, for us to receive into our hearts. That if Christ has seated us already in the heavenly places, why do we look so carefully at all the things of earth? I don't know, but we do, don't we? All too easily, that's where our gaze is. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Uh, Paul's repeating himself. Uh, uh, did he not realize that he just said that? No, he's using the, the, the familiar technique in Hebrew writing, Hebrew parallelism, saying something, then saying it again using different words because it's so important. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me praise his holy name. Why is the psalmist repeating himself? In order to make the point. And so Paul uses different words to say the same thing, to say above all else. If all that stuff in Colossians 1 and 2 is true about Jesus, then for heaven's sake, quite literally, fix your gaze on him. And not on all this this earthly stuff. Set your life, your focus, not on the temporal now, but on the eternal Christ. 
If you want to stay on track, you have to get your gaze fixed on Christ with whom you are already seated in the heavenly places. To lift our gaze above this earthly stuff and to fix it on His eternal truths. But I guess you might be like me and spend quite a bit of time focused on your circumstances and what needs to be done this week. I mean, I mean, Christmas is a nightmare, isn't it? Do you know, we live life, don't we, on like one of those treadmill things, you know, at the gym. No, you don't know, obviously, I can tell, you don't know. Well, at a gym, which is a place you go to exercise, there are these machines to help you run. You get cross if you can't park right outside the door to go and use the machine that'll help you run, but that's another story. And you go onto this running machine, and you're there running at a good pace. And most of us here are running at a good pace, aren't we? Yeah, it's quite hard work running at our pace. So we're running along at a good pace, and then Christmas comes, and it's like some fool comes along to your machine and just ramps up the speed. And you've just got to go 90 miles an hour just to keep going. And where are we fixed through December? I'm fixed on all the things I have to do. I'm fixed on whether my lights outside my house are bigger than the ones next door. I'm fixed on whether my letter makes our family look better than their family when they, we receive theirs. I'm fixed on who I've sent Christmas cards to and whether I had them back, are the mince pies baked and all that stuff. And then church comes along and we slip another ooh, five or six activities in just for good measure, just to keep up the pace. I plead with you, where are you going to look this Christmas time? Where's your gaze going to be? Because if we don't want to get crushed by the pressure of this world that is crushing people even now, we have to lift our gaze. Because we know that Christ is all and above all. You've got to get the right perspective. You see, if you're travelling across uh, the English Channel on a very rough day, it can seem a terribly long time even to get from Dover to Calais, especially if the last 24 hours worth of food is just sort of regurgitating itself. But if you were to travel across the English Channel at exactly the same time as that boat had crossed, but this time in an aeroplane, you'd look down at what seemed a nice, still, quiet little river. Truth is, nothing had changed about the English Channel, but your perspective of it had altered. And we must, as Christian people, get the right perspective. And sometimes, uh, if you well, this is what I'm like, and I guess sometimes you might be like it too. Sometimes I look at what's going on around me, and it just seems too big. And I think, how, how am I just going to keep going in all of this stuff? But if, if my gaze was off the stuff and onto a God who is always there, who always loves, whose power holds this world in his hands, who is one breath, things can go and things can come. If I got my gaze on him, then most of the stuff around me is trivia, isn't it? But as soon as my gaze comes down to the things around me, I elevate it in its importance in my life. So Paul says, if you've understood who Jesus is, for goodness sake, keep your eyes fixed on him, the eternal Christ and not the temporal. Now get your right perspective. The victorious Christian life will ultimately be the life 
that's focused on him. So fix your eyes where on Jesus and run the race, it says. Fix your eyes on him and get going. And one of the, one of the incredible things about, about the brokenness in our world, and, and that's what Rachel was kind of sharing with us, wasn't she? One of the incredible things about the brokenness of our world, when, when, the, when the things around us are far from trivial, if that perspective is right, what a difference it makes. What an example that was a few moments ago about where your eyes are fixed, where your life's fixed, where you're looking. And, and the history of the Christian church is littered with people. I mean, I'm not going to read it now because Rachel's done it for us, but I, I might have read from Dietrich Bonhoeffer who, who in the year that he was going to be executed in prison, he talks about God's wonderful power sheltering him. And he can, how can he speak like that in his circumstances? Why? Because he's learned to fix his gaze, not on the things around, but on Christ who holds his life firm, come what may. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Hallelujah. That's it, isn't it? Fix your eyes on Jesus, because one day, come what may, come rain or shine, why? Because your life is hidden in Christ, verse 3, when he appears, you will appear with him in glory. So, if you've got all that belief set sorted out, if you've got your focus right, if you're believing in Jesus who is all, in whom your life is already hidden, with whom you are already seated in the heavenly places, and you're fixing your gaze on him so that nothing's going to alter those truths that are deep in your heart, then Paul now begins to move on to behavior. He goes, so behave like it then. Verse 5. Put to death. Kill off whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Now the image here is like the films. I guess Paul had never watched them, but you know the kind of films when the baddie is killed off right at the end. Or you think the baddie has been killed off right at the end. And then suddenly when you've relaxed and you think the film's over, all but the credits, and the baddie's dead, suddenly the baddie comes back to life again and whoa, everyone goes... No, it's just me. And, and uh, uh, it's like that here. Put to death the things in your life that are against the Christ that you are now focused on. But notice, because the verse in the Greek is you've got to keep on doing it. It's like once you think it's dead, still be aware because it will come alive again. And you've known that in your life, haven't you? You've known something that you thought you got dealt with, thought you'd put to bed, thought you got sorted out, and one morning you wake up and there it is, staring in your face, as large as ever. You've got to keep putting to death everything that belongs to the life before you understood about Jesus. And we'll do that until the day we see him. And then we'll be like him. And then the credits can roll. Then we can relax and know that it's over. But until that day, Paul says, keep putting to death all this stuff that belongs to the earthly nature. 
Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. You'll notice quite a lot of sexual sins in there. Paul's day uh, uh, was very sexually promiscuous like our own. People say, why do we make such a thing about it? We make such a thing about it because it really destroys people's lives. It really, really destroys people's lives when they get this stuff wrong. And that's why we make a thing about it, because God longs that we don't mess up our lives. And when we do, His grace and His power to heal is undiminished, and God does some wonderful things. We've got to keep putting it to death, keep taking a stand, keep killing it off. And then he moves on from sexual sins to social sins. You must rid yourself, verse 8, of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Now, I get quite a lot of that in church as well. But we've got to keep killing it off. Keep putting off the old self. We've got to stop focusing on these things, looking to Jesus and saying, my life is now hidden with him. I'm killing these things day by day. And maybe we are tempted to create a little hierarchy. We put some sins up here and some sins down there. Some sins are really bad and others aren't quite so bad. I find that it's the sins that other people do that are really bad and my own sins aren't quite so bad. Have you ever, have you ever sort of judged it like that? Paul doesn't seem to do that at all. Malice and rage and anger are right up there with all these others. No hierarchy. What does sin do? It destroys all that's good and holy. What does it do? It destroys relationships. It messes up our relationship with God, messes up our relationships with our spouses and our children and our neighbours and our family and everybody else. And if there is a hierarchy here, maybe verse 9 is the top of the list. Lying. Do not lie to each other. Lying is incredibly destructive. A single lie destroys a marriage. A single lie destroys a family. A single lie destroys a friendship. A single lie can destroy a business partnership, a working relationship overnight. It was a lie that began this whole fallen world. You surely will not die. It was a lie. And when we lie, we identify our allegiance not with the one that we're trying to fix our gaze on, but we identify our allegiance with the father of Lies. That's what he's called. The fa- Satan, the father of lies. Because lying is so destructive in our lives. But when we are fixed on Jesus, who is not the lie, but the truth, the truth sets us free. Lying enslaves us and truth sets us free. And the idea in these verses, we're rushing now, I'm sorry, the idea in these verses, five, six, seven, eight, and so on, it, it's like you're putting on a garment. And when you put on a garment in those days, it was uh, a sign of a, an initiation into a new uh, a religion, and so a new sense of allegiance. So you're putting off all the garments that express your allegiance to the father of lies, and you're putting on in its place all the garments that express your allegiance to the one on whom you are now fixing your gaze. And if you do all this, If you live like this, you will be responsible for creating God's new world, which is described in verse 11. You will be responsible for creating God's new world. Where will that be? Will that be in heaven? 
No, God's new world here on earth. We're encouraged to pray, aren't we? We've had this already in this series. We're encouraged to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth, as it is in heaven. And if we get our gaze right, and if we start killing off everything that's uh, 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 got, a, got its allegiance to this world and its, its old way of living and so on, then we will begin even in our community to create God's new world where there's no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. A new community where there's no racial, religious, cultural, political or economic barriers. No Greek or Jew, no racial barriers, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no religious barriers. And so it goes on. I could tell you something funny about being a Baptist, but we haven't got time. Uh, barbarian. A barbarian. Uh, this, was, this was a term of mockery. The Greeks that were all sophisticated with their cultural language would look down on the barbarians because they couldn't speak the language. So it's like they were just bleating like sheep. Barbarians. That's where the name comes from. It was a term of mockery. It was like, thickos very degrading. And God says, the people that the world pushes out like that are part of my new community, are part of what it will mean to build heaven on earth. And then a Scythian was even worse, a totally stupid barbarian. This is God's new world, where there are no divides, nothing corrupts, nothing breaks down, nothing destroys from lust to lying, from intellectualism to racism, all got rid of as Christ is all and in all. That's what staying on track is all about. Christ at the centre and building this community where day after day we're, we're kicking off the old self. We're, we're putting to death over and over again the things that belong to our previous allegiance. And it's all Jesus. And so a community will rise up. In the middle of a world that's falling apart, there'll be a community of God's people coming together. In a world where there is such disconnection, we can become God's connected people. But only with Jesus, in all and above all. Let's pray.